Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. Welcome to the first of a two-part conversation with Santiago Rincon Gallardo. This conversation was a wonderful opportunity to collaborate with Education Scotland and the Scottish Learning Festival Conversations. We hope these conversations connect with you individually and collectively, and we hope that they stir something in you that can't be undone. As Santiago says, the work we have to do isn't easy. It's not guaranteed to be successful, but it's the right thing to do. Santiago, it's lovely to meet you, to see you. I was lucky enough to spend time with you yesterday, um, and Billy and I are delighted to have the opportunity to yeah, dig a little deeper, I suppose, into some of the ideas and the work that you've been doing. Um, but before we get get too involved in the big ideas and, and the passion and the inspiration that I know you provided um, over the course of this week so far, uh, for the listeners, maybe you could um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your work, about how you've got to where you are today, I guess. Uh, so thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been having a blast here in Scotland. It's, it really does feel like um, visiting long lost friends, and uh, and it's it's been it's been terrific. Um, if I let me start with the with the single sentence that I think would describe who I am, and then I go into the details. But uh, I am someone who is um, committed to. Um, supporting young people and adults to rediscover their power to learn. That's the nature of the work I do. And that's the nature of the of the um, of my commitment to Mm -hmm. to to my professional life and my personal life uh, right now. And uh, I mean, I could give you kind of the credentials I worked for many years supporting um, grassroots pedagogical innovation in uh, classrooms in um, and in schools in, in the most remote remote parts of my home country, Mexico. Um, and then when I moved north, I got to meet Michael Full and had to work with him. Um, and that gave me access to also understanding and supporting system-wide change from the top, right? Uh, so so that gave me an opportunity to, to gain two different perspectives on how to mobilize change from the grassroots up and also from the top. Uh, and that's been phenomenal, just having the opportunity to explore, to support uh, pedagogical change on the in the global south, in the global north, in different, very different contexts has has given me a, a, a wealth of experience that has been a true privilege for me. Now, in, uh, in terms of what brought me to where I am right now and why my commitment to um, unleashing people's power to learn, uh, I want to share a little bit of my personal story. I used to be, uh, uh, throughout my whole time in school, throughout all years I went to school, I was considered to be an excellent student. I always had the top grades in my class. Every month I would come back home 
uh, with uh, with a with a paper saying that I had the best the best grades in my class. I often represented my school in academic competitions. I got all the highest honors that I could have gotten. I was what, in the eyes of my teachers and the principals of my schools, were I was a, 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 a an excellent student, an exemplary student, and yet I graduated high school from high school from secondary school not knowing how to read and write and i think that's that's a bit of a tragedy uh, i learned so the reason i got some so good grades is because i learned to ace the game of schooling i learned to uh memorize big amounts of informations big amounts of inform information and to to put it on the test the day after uh, to memorize certain algorithms and how to repeat them and, and, and put the formulas in the test the next day. I learned to understand what the teachers uh, expected from me and to do it. I learned to do as I was told. And I learned the tricks on how to get the best possible grade with the least possible effort. So what I became an ace on was on the game of schooling. I became an ace in the game of schooling, but forgot the forgot to learn. Mm. Um, I uh, uh, I could you know I continued to university for uh, uh, for a few years. I, I started I started studying mathematics and following very similar tricks to what I had the tricks I had learned in school. I was doing relatively well, but my school went uh, the university went on strike uh, in the middle of my in the middle of my of my studies. And at the time, I had the luck of meeting who uh, the person who became my lifelong mentor, Gabriel Camara. Uh, Gabriel was uh, in the 70s, a very close friend of Paulo Freire, of Ivan Illich, these radical thinkers in the 70s that were re trying to reimagine education and schooling, and that were big critics of, uh, of schooling. And Gabriel was looking for a young mathematician to join his team that was trying to develop uh, um, an education model that will allow young people to uh, to learn by themselves uh, in uh, in small rural communities um, uh, scattered around Mexico. And uh, I didn't have a school at the time. I was really eager to start uh, working. So uh, Gabriel invited me to his team. And one of the things that Gabriel was very insistent on was that we had to keep a very strong link between design and execution. We need to make sure that the ideas we had kind of in our minds were possible, were feasible in the remote communities we were trying to serve. Uh, so we spent a lot of time visiting these communities, not to, um, not to evaluate our teachers and our, the schools and the students, but to evaluate our strategy. The idea was to see what's working, what's not working, and what is it that we are doing that's causing what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. So what or what are we not doing? So we that that allowed us to understand what things we needed to change in our strategy to uh, to to make sure that what we wanted to see happening, which was vibrant learning communities in the most remote uh, remote corners of our country, came to life. Yeah. And uh, the most beautiful moment in our story as a group came when we realized that what we were asking the students, the teachers to do was different from what we were doing when we were training them. In essence, what we realized was that if we wanted to see learning communities flourishing in the most remote communities in the country, we had to become a learning community, a living learning community ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
So I started to learn history with the support of the, the expert in history. I started to read poetry with the, and to understand poetry for the first time in my life with the support of the expert in literature. I, saw, I supported the learning in mathematics for the expert in literature. And the experience really shook us to our core because we learned that even though we were really good at our area of expertise, we were pretty much novices yeah. in all the other subject matters. Even though we had completed schooling, we had good grades, all those kind of things, we really had learned very little about uh, how to think like a scientist, how to think like a historian, etc. But at the same time, the experience gave us back the confidence that we could learn whatever we set out to learn. And that changed our lives. This created a community that continues to this day and a, a community that has been growing in the thousands uh, over the past 25 years. That's the experience that unites us. It's the, the experience of rediscovering our power to learn. And I have to say, this is the best gift that life has ever given me. Mm. Right, rediscovering my power to learn. Yeah. You know, I, I went back, as I was saying, I started working with, with Gabriel when I was um, when I was in university and uh, I, I that truncated my, my studies. And when the, the, the strike was over, I decided to come back. I decided to stay working with Gabriel because the work was so stimulating. We were seeing learning coming to life, you mm -hmm. know, in the eyes of these children, in the teachers. Um, so, so I decided to stay working with him, but I wanted to finish my university degree as well. So uh, what I decided to do was to ask the teachers of the courses that I was yet to take, if I could enroll in their courses, not attend classes, but mm -hmm. study by myself and take the final exams. Yeah. And somewhat miraculously, all of them agreed. So, mm -hmm. so that's what we did. They gave me the syllabuses for, for the courses. I never showed up in the class and I would study by myself. And, and using this newly gained skill and confidence that I could learn whatever I set out myself to learn, I started to prepare for these exams. I became way more rigorous than the teachers because I had no idea, I had no clue because I was not in the class. I had no idea what was gonna come in the exam, right? What were the kind of questions or issues that they prioritize. I had to, to master the entire books and I made the habit of solving the hardest exercises because I didn't know how rigorous the teacher was or not. And yeah. I had no idea what, what was coming, what was gonna be in the exam or not. Yeah. I nailed every single final exam and my grades actually went up yeah. <laughs> when I stopped going to school and when I started to learn by myself. Yeah. This is an example of the, of the power that lies in rediscovering that you're able to learn whatever you set yourself to learn. I will make a confession here too. When I applied to Harvard to go to do grad, grad studies, I didn't know how to speak English. <laughs> I had no idea. I was, I mean, I could understand it. I could read it, but I never spoke or wrote English in my life. I cheated a little bit. Gabriel's wife helped me kind of put together my statement of purpose. Uh, and I went and I, I had the, I, I took the leap of going to a country and start a program in a language that I didn't master because I knew I could master it. Yeah. 
And I think that's one of the most important things we could do for our children, instilling them the, the confidence, the internal confidence that they can learn whatever they set themselves to learn. Yeah. And, and I... yet, so, so let me just, just close saying that has become my life's mission. Yeah. On the one hand, I understand the, the dread that schooling is. I went through it. I did very well and it was dreadful yeah. and it was hurting because yeah. it doing well in school meant disabling me from mm -hmm. learning by myself. Yeah. And on the other hand, so I want to, I want to save children, the dread of schooling, the pain of going through the motions of, of, an, of nonsense and uh, create the opportunity so that they reconnect with their power to learn. It is a power that resides in them, that they are, that it's a fire that's inside them, but that we tend to bury, tends to be buried on a, on a very heavy load of beliefs that we gain mostly in schools, that I'm too distracted, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm not good for mathematics, that I ask too many questions, you know, all these kind of things, I think we actually carry with us to this day and they are the legacy of schooling and they bury our innate power to learn. That's why I'm here. That's what I do the work. That's why I do the work that I do. And that's what gets me up every morning. And when you tell that story, um, it really brings together both the, the passion and the rigor of what you share with us about how we liberate learning and this idea of social movements it it makes it makes good sense if you like when you hear your story and and people really connect with that and that was one of the things that I certainly took away from um being in the in the real life room with you yesterday morning was that the two words that kept coming up from people was around passion and inspiration and I think your story very much um does that you also said just before we, we started recording, you said, you know, um, you've been delighted by how receptive and ready Scotland is. And I, I suppose I'm curious about why do you think you're here now? You know, what is it do you think that has brought you and Scotland together in this in this moment in time? That's a big question, I know. <laughs> Good. I'm going to get somewhat personal here, if that's OK. Um mm -hmm. I, I have been in conversations with um, with a phenomenal uh, district superintendent in California, Steve Martinez from the Twin Rivers Unified School District. We we decided to to talk to to have uh, biweekly conversations uh, conversations every other week uh, because he's interested in writing a book, and that's given some access given me some some access to his thinking um, and his uh, and his work um, as a leader, which has been phenomenal. He's doing. He has been turning around a, a district that was originally incredibly uh, toxic, uh, dysfunctional, into a very vibrant learning learning organization. Uh, and one insight that he shared with me was that he had come to a broken to a system in need of healing because he needed to heal himself. So he 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 realized he wanted to come here to this system because it was also important for his own healing. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to say there's healing needed in Scotland, or, but, but what I feel is like there's a mutual need here. Mm. Um, 
I had never seen such a vibrant response to the ideas in liberating learning. I mean, my Twitter account these last three days has just exploded. <laughs> it's going like crazy. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And I suspect it's because we, it's, a, it's, the, it's the moment where we had to, to meet. Yeah. Um, one of my questions has, has been, so where have you guys been all this time? I mean, it does seem like there's a beautiful match in terms of what, where you're at and what I have to offer. Um, and uh, and let, let me put it this way. I, I think that Scotland has some of the most important conditions to make really powerful stuff happen. Like really, really, really powerful, really, really powerful things to happen. You know, and I'll go through through it very quickly. I think there's there's a unity of purpose around what we want for what what this this society, what this nation wants for their students, and it's crystallized in the four capa capacities of the curriculum for excellence. Uh, and that's there's very strong support uh, around that. There's a clear vision as to what we want for our children. That is, there's a clear sense of why we're educating our children, and that's not the case in most countries. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's that's one. The second one is this tremendous societal support, commitment, pride in education. Mm -hmm. And again, not something that should be taken for granted. Not 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 one thing that's the case in many con in, in in many countries. Uh, there is um, a, a, a very, a, an oversupply of diagnosis, of, you know, of diagnostics on where the system is at. I mean, I don't think there's a nation with more reports on the status of their educational system than Scotland. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of clarity yeah. uh, as to where the system is at and, and some good ideas as to what, to ha what needs to happen. There's tremendous commitment as well uh, at all levels of the system uh, with all the leaders and educators and even students that I have interacted with there's very strong agreement as to where what should be our direction and and we're ready to make this happen right yeah. and then i had an opportunity to visit some schools and i get the sense that there is already at least with the primary schools some phenomenal le learning environments for children it's places of joy of learning of creativity you know like it's it's phenomenal and in some high schools too there are some constraints to what high schools can do right now but there are high schools that are taking some risks and doing tremendous work. You know, for me, the, the golden rule is whether uh, to, to, to see if I'm stepping into a good school is whether I would send my children to these schools when I visit them. And the two schools are visited, I visited are for sure schools where I would be delighted to be sending my children. So you have all these elements already in place. Uh, and yet I think there's still kind of a, a, a last jump to give, a last leap to give, to help crystallize into a palpable, unquestionable improvement and, and, and impact all these, all these elements. But any of these conditions that I'm listing down would be the envy on, of most countries. Um, and, and I think they need to be leveraged. Now, why now? And here, here I'm going to kind of let my esoteric self come up. But I think um, I, will, I will bring up a quote. Um, I believe it's from a Zen master. And this is a quote that, that my wife often uh, reminds me. The time came when the, when the caterpillar 
the time came for the caterpillar when it was more painful to stay in the cocoon than to expand its wings as a butterfly. And I think Scotland is there right now. Like, uh, you know, that holding on to the old patterns of control, of domination, of bureaucracy, of testing is now greater than the risk of jumping into flying as a butterfly. Um, and, and I think that's where that's where we come to meet. Mm -hmm. I will get, as I said, I was, I, I said I was going to get personal, but over a year ago, I realized that a lot of the work I was doing was far too removed from practice. Mm -hmm. And I had started to feel kind of a professional void myself. It was, you know, the academic work and, and mm -hmm. the publishing and, and doing these big reports for educational systems, all these kind of things, things that I know how to do well, but that were starting to feel a bit deprived of meaning. And uh, I made the conscious decision to shift my practice so that it could be closer to, to the ground, to where I can have a much more direct influence on helping unleash people's power to learn, helping people rediscover their power to learn and to, and to unleash it. Uh, and I think that's where, and, and I think that's what brought us together. I think uh, I think this is um, a beautiful moment for Scotland to step into uh, into its full potential. Um, and uh, and it's in a time when I was feeling eager to start connecting and partnering with systems that are ready to create what Margaret Whitley calls the islands of sanity that protect the human spirit, and in particular, for me, the, the protect the, the power of young people to learn. Santiago, I'm not surprised to hear that you've had such great feedback because the, the message that you are promoting um, certainly does connect with many in Scotland who, who want us to be bolder uh, to change conditions in schools for children and young people. Because as you've outlined, um, and we're going to get into talking about what, what real learning really is, the, the way that schools have evolved, and particularly myself as a secondary school head teacher, you know, I, I completely agree with, with what you say about the constraints that exist. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, why is Scotland ready? Well, we've been ready for quite a long time. Curriculum for excellence and its ambitions and principles. You know, we know from various reports uh, that the ambition is, is really is really good. It's it's welcome. Um, people agree. And yes, as you say, many countries would would uh, you know it, would like to be in a similar place. But but that was nearly twenty years ago, and there's been a an issue in how we've realised it in practice. So. Um, one, one of the things that you said in your keynote in the Scottish Learning Festival conversation, uh, which was really well attended the other day, kind of sums up, I think, what, what you've been saying about schooling and learning. You, you spoke about young people um, learning how to be taught instead of learning how to learn. And, and that was really, I, I could see from the feedback in the chat that that connected with people. Um, so let's let's talk more about what learning really is for you from your perspective, and and I know um, the the major concept you have is around liberating learning. 
So how, how would you describe that for us? Right. So um, let me start with a definition of learning that I think is is the, 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 the best definition so far, the clearest so far that I have come across. Uh, and that's a definition that's more grounded on uh, that that's grounded on on the neuroscience of learning. This is this is the way uh, Richard Elmore, a very dear mentor, teacher, friend of mine, um, put it. Uh, he said, learning is the ability to consciously modify understandings, beliefs and actions in response to evidence, experience and reflection. That's what learning is. And, um, and I think it's, it's a pretty good start. I think um, Richard uh, passed away very suddenly a couple of years ago. That was an incredibly sad day for me. Um, he left too, too early. Uh, and I wish I had a chance to chat with him about this definition because I, I love it. I think it's a huge uh, contribution to, to our understanding of the nature of learning. But I thought it was missing a couple things. One is this definition that I just presented, the ability to consciously modify uh, understandings, beliefs, actions in response to evidence, experience and reflection is very rational, uh, very um, uh, thinking oriented and of course that's an important part of learning but learning is also an emotional phenomenon it happens in the intersection between the best of our thinking and the best of uh, the highest of our emotions and that, those two parts need to be part of it and the other part that i think is missing is that in this definition is sense making we learn really learning all this process of modifying uh, 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 be, uh, beliefs and, and behaviors and, 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 and thinking and knowledge in response to evidence, experience or reflection is triggered by a desire to make sense, make sense and making sense on the law, on the, on the, on a wider sense of what it means to, to do for sense making is to integrate in a coherent whole what you're trying to master, right? Uh, so uh, I, I, as a complement to what uh, Richard Elmore has defined as learning, I would, I would add the definition that I offer in, in learning, in liberating learning, which is it's the process and the result of making sense of questions that matter to us. And that's what learning is about. You know, it's, it's a process of making sense and it's of making sense of questions that matter to us. We only learn well what matters to us. Uh, and I think those two offer a good combination, you know, combined, they offer a pretty, pretty good definition, I think, of what learning is. Now, you were talking about learning to be taught and learning to learn, and those are two very different things. And the, the, the version, the definition of learning that most of our classrooms promote in our, in, in our students, in classrooms and schools and educational systems all over the world, is a different thing than when I'm, what I just defined here as learning. Learning in most classrooms, most of the work that students do every day, most of the homeworks and most of the, the, the practice that they engage in every day for years is the ability to recall and repeat information and algorithms in, a, in an accurate and precise manner. That's what most of the machinery of schooling is making possible for our children uh, every day in the classrooms. That's what schools are designed to do and that do relatively well. Uh, train our children 
to recall and repeat inform information and algorithms in a precise and appropriate manner. And that's always been problematic. I think critics of schooling for decades have said, this is not what we should be doing with children. But right now, at this point in history, it is unacceptable because repeating and recalling information and algorithms is something that machines do much better than humans. They have yeah. outperformed us by far. They, they do this much more reliably, much more quickly, much more efficiently than us humans. So if we continue to prepare our children to recall and repeat information and algorithms, we are setting them up to a competition day for a competition that they're set to lose. And I think that's a waste of our time, of our effort, of our energy. In this time, when this year, with the emergence of ChatGPT and all that's shaking up our certainties about what schooling should be about, we need to ask a hard question, which is, if what we're asking students to do right now, this day, and throughout the year, is something that ChatGPT or a machine can do better, then why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? And if you subtract what our children are doing right now, if you subtract from what our children are doing right now, what machines know how to do very well, I think the result will be almost zero <laughs> or negative, right? Um, the, it's an existential question right now. It's, an, it's a matter of the survival of humanity. Yep. Do we want to protect the human spirit and humanity? Or do we want machines to take over our world, right? So the question comes, you know, the question is, if not this, if not uh, kind of recalling and repeating information, then what? What is it that makes us human that can bring value to our world? Because that's where we need to focus our effort in education, right? In preparing humans, not in preparing second-class machines, right? Or third-class machines. Um, and there are two things that I believe are at the core of what it means to be human and that we can do much better than machines and that actually offer value to this world. One is discernment. Discernment understood as the capacity to decide based on your values and your uh, knowledge and expertise and culture and uh, intuition, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Discernment. That's not something that machines can do. And that's something that's incredibly needed right now. Our capacity to discern individually and collectively what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. The second one is compassion. Our ability to see ourselves in others. Our ability to help others. Our ability to, to feel for and with others. That's not something that machines can do. And again, that's a driving force of, 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 of goodness, of ethics, of, of, uh, of care, of love. I think those are the two things that make us human and that we need to start cultivating more in our schools, way more. That would, have to, that would be the priority. And now these two things, discernment and compassion, I think 
are precisely what capacities, like the four capacities in the Curriculum for Excellence, you know, confident individuals, successful learners, effective contributors, uh, responsible citizens. That's what I think, that's, that's precisely what we need to cultivate discernment and compassion. Um, and that's why I think that's where the power of these four competencies, these four capacities lies. Um, so let me just put it, uh, just coming back to what you were saying, Bill, about Billy, about um, learning to be taught. At the end of the day, learning to be taught is about placing the responsibility to determine what's true, what's good, what's beautiful outside of yourself. You defer that to the teacher. To the head teacher, to the to the school leader, to local authority, to the minister of education, uh, to your prime minister, it's them who determine, and you you we get trained to defer to others to decide what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. Learning to learn, on the contrary, requires that we take the responsibility to determine by ourselves, based again on our knowledge and values and experience and um, culture and uh, intuition, what's true and what's not true, what's good and what's not good, what's beautiful and what's not beautiful. That's what, that's what learning to learn requires. Learning at the end of the day is a practice of freedom. Learning is a practice of freedom. Schooling has historically been a vehicle for control. And that's the fundamental tension we need to tackle that's the fundamental pleasure we need to work with um it doesn't it doesn't mean that we don't need any kind of structure or rules or it doesn't mean that but we but we need to acknowledge this fundamental tension because by overemphasizing control domination you know rules we have stifled the imagination the creativity the joy of our students and with that we're contributing to placing humanity at risk. I think we also see the impact of that on children and young people themselves. We are, I know lots of countries around the world, particularly post the pandemic, um, we see a level of lack of hope or disengagement or yeah. you know, the, the traditional systems um, don't do it for a number of children and young people. And that, that is, as you've said, fundamentally about purpose. You know, as a maths teacher, I was always asked, what's the, what's the point of this? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? And that just exemplifies the, the power of learning. Now, you mentioned that in, in primary schools in particular, you've seen signs of hope and, and learning that's more attuned to, to what you propose. I'm going to ask you a big question, and particularly from a, a secondary perspective, if, if we agree, and hopefully people do agree, and I know you've been speaking to directors of education and various people in the system, that we want to see more learning, human learning. What does this mean for the assessment system that drives so much of what happens? Right. Uh, well, we need to... Uh, so I'll come back to first to the, to the question of ChatGPT. I can almost guarantee that uh, if you let ChatGPT or a ChatGPT enable technology, take the examinations uh, from secondary school, they will outperform almost any student uh, in the country. Um, and if not right now, if not immediately, very quickly after. There was already an experiment that was conducted where um, uh, ChatGPT was uh, asked to take the, the uh, lawyer's uh, bar examination. 
uh, and uh, the first time around, it was within the 30th percentile. But with the quick learning that these things now develop, it only took a few weeks for it to, uh, to perform at the 90th percentile. Uh, so the question is, again, if uh, the problem with testing as we know it right now, the version of assessment that, that, that's very prevalent in places like, like Scotland, is the kind of the kind of testing that uh, that machines do or will do very quickly do much better than humans on because it's they rely on recalling and repeating information on algorithms the kind of learning that i'm saying it's gonna be hum it's dehumanizing us um so so i think assessment need to be reconsidered it's not that we have to just get rid of tests and assessment all all together it's a matter of thinking of the ways to measure the things that we value. Measure what's important, as John McKechn has said. Measure what's important. Don't make what's measurable important, but make what's important measurable. Uh, and I think uh, Lewis Hayward's uh, report already offers some really good ideas as to what uh, an assessment that really reflects what we value uh, uh, is, a, is, 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 a, is a very good starting point. Um, um, the tragedy of testing regimes, as we have known them so far, is that you can train students to do very well on tests while, they, while, while devoiding them of any meaning and any capacity of learning by themselves. I think the story I shared early on is a good example. I was an exemplar student and I was disabled to learn on my own. And that's a very high price. And I don't think it's fair that we ask our children to to sacrifice their power and the passion to learn for the sake of doing well in a test. Of course, right now, the, I think that the heavy emotional importance of the test is that it's the credential, it's the path to your future, right? To the opportunities that you have in the future, etc. But beyond that, it reflects nothing about your ability to learn. Of course, if you, if you recover the power to learn and are really good at learning, you may do well in tests. But that's not usually how things go. As I was saying, when I was in university, I, I, I ended up improving my grades because I learned to learn by myself. So you can do it, but that's not how the things go. When you put testing on the driver's seat, that's what drives everything. And the focus is doing well on the test, regardless of how well and how deeply you're learning. And that creates a very perverse system. Now, again, it's not that assessment should be put aside. It's just that we need to rethink it so that it serves the purpose it has to serve. Assessment should never be on the driver's seat. What has to be on the driver's seat is learning, pedagogy, right? Then assessment is there. It can be kind of maybe part of the dashboard or at the most sitting at the co-pilot seat, but not be on the driver's seat. So it's not, it's not about abolishing testing. It is about giving it its proper place and making sure that we organize it so that, so that it really measures what we value. Um, if, if we don't do that, we're contributing to, to uh, um, it seems like an exaggeration, but I think it's a very accurate claim to, uh, to the end of humanity. Uh, because it's, the, it's, it's shutting down what makes us fundamentally human, which is our power to learn. 
Um, uh, anyways, I, I think, oh, and to what you were saying about, you know, what we all experience in schools and, and the disengagement uh, of young people right now. Uh, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of suicide attempts, all those kind of things. I will say two things. First, I'm reminded of a beautiful book written by a very good friend, Carla Shalabi, that's called Troublemakers. And what she did, that was her doctoral research, was to shadow eight, I believe, eight eight-year-olds that were identified by the teachers as troublemakers. And what she realized was that these were brilliant children. They were brilliant. And that their dignity was tremendous. That they knew they were getting in trouble when they were making trouble. But they were doing that, doing that in defiance of a system that was trying to crush them as humans. And what she was saying was troublemakers are canaries in the coal mine. You know, uh, in, in in mines, the canaries are, were used by, by miners because they're more sensitive to the toxicity in the air. So when the canary starts to act out, it's telling you there's something toxic here. Let's let's move. That's what troublemakers are. And a lot of the behavior problems that we're seeing in classrooms right now after the pandemic, I think, are just signs that we are putting children into an incredibly toxic environment. And the, the troublemakers are the most sensitive to it, but but it's them, it's it's being hurtful for everyone. That's one thing I wanted to say. And the other one was about the the lack of hope and the discouragement that we see also spreading not also not only amongst our young people but also our adults. And yeah, I I, I want to put it this way, um, and this is what one of the learnings that I have gained from Dr. Margaret Whitley. She's become almost an instant mentor. Um, I had an opportunity to interview her, to chat with her um, just a few weeks ago, and she's already kind of taken over a lot of my thinking. But um, we are right now in times of collapse, societal collapse, environmental collapse. And this is not an opinion. This is a high, historically validated, a scientifically validated fact, a historically validated claim. We are in the midst of collapse. All things that remain certain for so many, even thousands of years, are now being shaken up politically, financially, uh, environmentally, socially. We are in times of collapse, and these can be very dark times. And disengagement, lack of hope, is one of the ways to cope with the overwhelm of the destruction and the um, and the suffering and the death that's happening around us, it's one way of coping, right? You just yeah. give up. What what else do we do? I think there's another way, and again, this is inspired by my connection with uh, with uh, Margaret Whitley. There's one thing that we can do that's absolutely worth our best effort in the midst of all this darkness, which is protecting the human spirit, keeping the flame of this human spirit alive. That's when, that's, it's in times of collapse, darkness, crisis, that the best of the human spirit can come to the surface. Uh, 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 Mike, uh, Meg Whitley 
actually invites us to think of our role as leaders, uh, as warriors of the human spirit, that that's what you were here to do. We're here to defend, to protect, to nurture the human spirit. And I could also uh, replace human spirit for our young people's power to learn. I think that's the nature of the work that we we have to do. Uh, and I think that gives that can give way more meaning to what we're doing. Um, uh, Meg Whitley invites us to think about our work as warriors of the human spirit as creating islands of sanity, creating islands of sanity. And for me, in the, in the case of education, that means knowing that the power to learn, think of the power to learn of our young people as a flame, as a flame that right now is very weak, that's very tepid because it's been times of very heavy winds and hurricanes and storms. So our role as adults working with children is to create, make our classrooms and, and our schools and our school systems sanctuaries that protect the flame, that protect it, that feed it, that nurture it, that help it grow and help it spread. I think that's the nature of the work we have to do. I think it's absolutely worth our best effort, not because, and this is the, the beautiful way Meg Whitley puts it, not because we're going to be successful, because we don't know, but because that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good enough reason. Mm, absolutely. And, and I'm curious, what role do you think play has in, in liberating learning? And I know you talk about mobilizing head, heart and, and hands. And I think often that's where when we think and you did a, a brilliant exercise, simple but brilliant with us yesterday around reflecting on a time we'd learned something and got really good at it and the conditions for that. And then the last one, the last question you asked us all in, in the room was, and did you learn that in a classroom? And not one hand went up in that room yesterday. Right. And, and there was a bit of a kind of slightly awkward, uncomfortable silence and a bit of shuffling and noise as well. So yeah, where, where does play fit with all of this? Right, play is the laboratory for powerful learning. I mean, it's the practice of learning. Mm -hmm. um, play is the, one of the most beautiful expressions of, of freedom. Mm -hmm. And learning is freedom, right? Uh, why? Because um, to learn, we need to be ready to make fools of ourselves. We need to be ready to try things differently. We need to be ready to fail, to fall, and know that that's okay, and, and, laugh, and laugh it out, and stand up again, and do it again. Play is what play puts you... Really, the most powerful learning occurs when you are combining the best of your thinking with a high emotional state and play allows for those two things to happen. Um, Alison Gopnik, uh, a phenomenal uh, researcher and academic in the field of the, the human mind, the children's mind, she's been studying how the, how the, uh, how the children's mind emerges and develops. And with all the laboratory experiments they've been doing, some very creative, around uh, uh, children learning and play as well, uh, she, she concludes that at the end of the day, you cannot, you cannot make children learn. You can only, only let them learn. 
and and what you do is create space for play. And it's not that you just do and fool around whatever you want to do. Play also has a very strong structure to it. There's always structure in play, but there's the, the safety, the joy of figuring things out, knowing that you can make mistakes and that's okay. Uh, so play is a serious thing, I would mm-hmm. say. And Alison Gobney goes further. There's a paper that, uh, uh, a white paper that I, that I wrote um, a year ago or so with Josh Fullen, actually Michael Fullen's son, and with Dr. Gene Clinton, uh, a phenomenal psych, child psych- psychiatrist who, who was one of the advisors to the Premier of Ontario together with Michael Fullen and Andy Hargreaves. We wrote a, a paper called uh, Play to Thrive. And in that paper, we, we, we take on a lot of the work from Alison Gopnik because I think it's incredibly relevant to the field of education right now. But one of the things that uh, Alison Gopnik suggests is that there's an evolutionary reason for why us humans have much more prolonged childhoods than most other species mm-hmm. relative to, to our life expectancy. Our childhood is much longer than it is for many other animals. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. It is because play is not only important for the individual development of children, but for our very survival as humanity. What humanity, what has kept humans alive and thriving, uh, even probably more than we should have, now we have just plagued the, this, this planet, is our ability to adapt mm-hmm. to new environments, our capacity to adapt to new environments. And to do that, you need creativity, you need new ways of thinking, you need, uh, you need all these things. And what Alison Gopnik says is, play, childhood, is a protected place where children can play. Mm-hmm. And then they can ask questions that we don't even think about, and they can come up with solutions to problems that we would never think about. That's what place allows you to do. Yeah. It's to create a very fertile ground for ideas, for solutions, for questions. And that's what gives us an opportunity as humanity. You know, there comes a time when this idea, which might seem incredibly silly, turns out to be the idea that saves your life, you know, the life of a community. Mm-hmm. What's very ironic is that we have constrained this creative time of our lives with schooling. (laughs) And with that, we're again putting our humanity at risk. Mm -hmm. We need the space where children can roam free in their imaginations because we don't know what are the circumstances they will have to face in the future, but we know they're not very uh, positive necessarily. Uh, we need the space for play. We need to make play the way of learning, uh, and play on the on the in a in a broad sense. You can play mathematically. You can play historically. You can play scientifically. So um, at the end of the day, it's not about again just pure joy. Real powerful learning actually happens in the intersection between joy and rigor, and I think we need to find that that equilibrium. It's not too much of one or too much of the other. It's in that intersection that the most powerful, beautiful forms of learning happen. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform, sharing on social media, or leave us a review. 
Thanks again.